Hi folks, welcome to Brand New and Ancient, a podcast that I've put together because I am no longer teaching English and I miss it a lot. And I've decided just to talk to, into a microphone in my shed to try and compensate for no longer teaching it in the classroom. TY duties have taken over and it means that I can't devote my time to what I really love, which is teaching English. So, why did I do it? Because I've taught Leaving Cert English for 20 years and I might have one or two things to say about the poetry that you have in front of you. I'm not saying that my words are wisdom or words of great profound thought, but they might help you in putting together your own ideas and feelings about the poetry. Poetry, and you've 36 them for the Leaving Cert, can look daunting and can be look like something that you'd rather have your teeth pulled out of than trying to understand the poet that you have in front of you. But I think that does a great disservice to you and to poetry because I believe poetry is a fantastic medium. It's an incredible medium. And when you think about it every day, if you're humming and singing songs, you are, in a way, singing poetry. So, without rabbiting on too much, and apologies if I do go off point several times here because it's all unscripted. I just have the poems in front of me and my own thoughts. And I'm going to start with Emily Dickinson. Now, if you look at poor old Emily on the front cover of whatever poetry book you have, she has a very austere look about her. Touch of the got, really. She's dressed in black. Eyes looking straight at the camera, leaning with a book beside her, and looks like a very serious woman. And oftentimes, whenever I hear people talk about Emily Dickinson, it's always that she was a poetry obsessed, a poet obsessed with debt. Her poetry was all negative and, oh, she was just a harbinger of doom, really. And I think that does her an awful disservice. Because I think she was had a great crack. I think she had a wild sense of humour. Yeah, <laughs> it might seem like it's wild when you're looking at that picture of her, looking at it again. But she had a wicked sense of humour that really played with that austere religious background that she had when she was growing up. And she kind of rebels against it in her own little way. And she is an unusual fish. I mean, this is a woman who pretty much lived in her own room for most of her life, not telling anyone what she was doing, writing a few bits of poetry, corresponding to people by um, letter, sometimes talking to the kids next door, and giving them treats by dropping down a basket. And when she passed away, she had a bunch of Irishmen lift her coffin, walk her through a very specific route, through a barn, to be buried nearby. And this would sound like somebody who is a little bit of an oddball, but we are all oddballs, every single one of us. Nobody is normal. And we will see many facets to Emily Dickinson's personality when we go through her poetry. But certainly, yeah, she did write poems that were quite morbid. But she also wrote very funny, witty poems. Not not funny, ha-ha, hold my side and laugh. But very funny uh, poems that shows that real sense of humour, that streak of humour that she had within her. So, where do we start off? Well, there's lots of poems, and no, I'm not going to start off with the I felt a funeral in my brain, or 
uh, soul has bandage moments or that wonderful I heard a fly buzz when I died. You know, they're the ones that, are, that really feel morbid. And that's, as I said, a disservice to her. We're going to start off with Hope is the Thing with Feathers. Fantastic little ditty. And as you notice, none of her poems actually have a title. And if there is a title at the top of your uh, poetry book, that's doing it a disservice. There was none. It was the first line. The first line is the poem. There was no titles. She wrote 1,600 of these poems, and very few of them had titles. And very few of them were actually published. But this one, Hope is the Thing with Feathers, is fantastic. And you'll notice that with a lot of her poems. It's a very striking opening sentence. There's an opening line. Uh, You know, it grabs your attention straight away. And she's fantastic for doing that. And here she does it using um, dashes as well. And using these dramatic pauses. And remember this, folks. Poetry should never really be read off a page. The majority of poems are obviously published on paper. And you have all your poems in front of you on paper. But a lot of poems were meant to be heard and their sound effects, you hear it when you read it out. And it's no different for this. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never sings. In fact, I read that wrong, huh? Typical. We'll give that another go. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard, and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. Lots of dashes in there. Lots of very strong statements about hope. Now, we know hope is an abstract thing. You can't actually see it. You can't touch it. Maybe you can feel it, but you can't certainly look at it in front of you. Hope is an abstract thing. And what Emily Dickinson does here is to actually make it something tangible, something that's there. Hope is the thing with feathers. And hope is the thing with feathers. Not the bird with feathers or the... Hope is a bird. It's the hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul. You know, that sense that, yes, we get it's a bird and it's perching within the soul. So the soul is its cage. Even if you could call it a cage, it seems to be very happy there and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. You know, it sings the tune without the words. There's no words. There's multiple feelings of hope. It's a feeling like an emotion. An emotion's like a song. And it sings the tune without the words. and never stops. And that pause at all. Never stops at all. It's brilliant. You know, because it's saying it's continuous. It never gives up. And it's dramatic. Never stops. And to reinforce that at all. So it just keeps going. And sweetest in the gale is heard. So even in the worst moments, and the gale is a symbol of maybe the storm in someone's life. So sweetest in the gale it's heard. So hope, at the worst times, hope is the most important thing. And it sounds so wonderful, this 
tune, if you want to call it something, is heard, it seems so great and so wonderful in the worst of times, the gale, the storm, the storm of your life. And sore must be the storm. You know, the storm must be really annoyed and upset because it can't abash this little bird. It can't stop this little bird from singing. It can't stop this tune because in the worst times in someone's life, that is when hope is the most important. And sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. You know, that, and sore must be the storm must be annoyed that it could abash this little bird that kept so many warm, that it could attack and try to shame this little bird, shame it that kept so many warm, that it would try, this storm would try and shame the bird to shut it up that kept so many warm. So it kept so many warm, you know, that hope, that feeling within someone. And often when we say you get that warm feeling within you, you've got that happy feeling. Here it's that warm feeling of hope. And it kept so many, not just the poet. You know, and she begins to introduce herself in the last stanza. And I have heard it in the chillest land. And when she says she's heard it in the chillest land, we may assume or take out of that, that whatever trauma she's had in her own life, the chillest land, like when we think of chilly lands, we're thinking of the Antarctica, these snow-swept, cold places where you can't survive. And she's heard it in this awful, isolated, because they, they seem to be often great vistas or landscapes of nothingness. And there she is. She's heard it in that chillest land. She's heard that tune. That tune without the words that never stops all. She's heard that and it's kept her going in the chillest land. And on the strangest sea, and again, that sense of isolation, that sense of being separate from everybody, that sense of disorientation, you know, the strangest sea. If anyone's out at sea, you look around, everything looks the same, just horizon and water and sky. And so the strangest sea would even compound that feeling of being lost, that feeling of just being completely disorientated in where you are. So she's heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea. So in these awful moments, maybe in her life, when she's completely lost, she's heard it. Yet, never in extremity, never in the worst times has the bird, it asked a crumb of me. Never in extremity. So no matter what was going on, it never looked for anything back. It gives hope this wonderful abstract feeling and emotion keeps you going and it never looks for anything back and it's a real appreciation of hope and a celebration of what hope can be so that somebody who's in the worst of times if they've got hope they can survive and certainly emily dickinson in her worst moments and it's there kept for the last stanza of her to say that when she brings herself into the poem, she says she's experienced this and hope has kept her going. Never in extremity. So even in the worst of times, has it asked anything? It's given, but never asked for anything back. And I think that's brilliant. You know, I think it's a fine, wonderful little ditty, if you want, a little poem that, you know, is really inspirational. 
And when you think of some of the terrible poems that she really pummels the depths of her own and our own fears of death. Here, she says she's been at those terrible places, you know, in the strangest sea, in the chillest land, and hope has kept her going. So it's a real wonderful, positive poem and not something that we attribute to the likes of uh, Emily Dickinson and the stereotype that's there of her. And there's lots and lots of themes that you can tie that into. Hope, obviously, <laughs> okay, it's in the title. But you can also, you know, talk about, you know, somebody in the worst of times, they have something to hold on to. They've got this positivity and this abstract feeling that, you know, that is there. She does a wonderful job in creating something tangible, something that's there. You can almost see it and it's within all of us. And it reminds me of an awful song from the 90s, uh, Build, Build a Little Birdhouse in Your Soul. I always think of that. Um, check it out. It's an awful song, but I used to love it. It was late 80s. Hey, I'm wandering here. Let's go on to another positive poem. And again, it's bird-like in its way. It is a bird came down the walk. It was a walk. I'll just have to check. Let me just run over here. A bird came down the walk. Right, another um poem that is positive not this negative poetry that we think of emily and a bird came down the walk is fantastic and it's a great companion to counter those arguments that she's obsessed with the morbid side of life here you can imagine emily yes she's in her upstairs bedroom locked away from everybody because that's her choice that's what she wants to do she is a recluse there's no point in denying that but she's there sitting in this room and she's looking out a window. And as she's looking out, she's looking at nature and the world. And she spots this bird. And the way she describes this bird, there's a real sense of humor there. There's a real sense of awe and curiosity about the bird. She doesn't say the bird. She says a bird. So it's, it's, it's just any bird. A bird came down the walk. He did not know I saw. He bit an angle worm in halves and ate the fellow raw. And then he drank a view from a convenient grass. And then he hopped sideways to the wall to let a beetle pass. He glanced with rapid eyes that hurried all around. They looked like frightened beads, I thought. He stirred his velvet head like one in danger, cautious. I offered him a crumb and he unrolled his feathers and rolled him softer home. Then oars divide the ocean, too silver for a seam. Or butterflies off banks of noon leap plashless as they swim. It's a wonderful poem and you can really hear the rhythm and the rhyming and the kind of the fun in the poem as she describes this bird. And the bird comes down the walk and did not know that she was watching. So she's almost like the voyeur watching through the window as this bird, unbeknownst to anybody or anything, comes along. And the description of him shows the cruelty in nature without the thought in nature. He bit an angle worms in half and ate the fellow raw. So he bit an angle worm in halves and ate the fellow raw. So we get this image of the bird coming down the walk, almost like a gentleman walking down the road. 
walking down the wall. And without thinking, Susan Engelworm swiftly bit it in halves and ate the fella raw. Doesn't cook it, just eats it raw. Savage. But it doesn't feel savage. It just shows you this is nature. But then you contrast that, his biting of this angleworm in halves and eating it raw with what he does next. He drinks a dew from a convenient grass. You can almost, it's almost like he went over and had a little drink afterwards. And then hops sideways to the wall to let a beetle pass. So, you know, this sense of respect to nature, this funny kind of hierarchy, hierarchy of, um, I suppose, uh, animals and insects. There he is. He brutally kills an angleworm and eats it, then drinks a dew from a convenient grass sat nearby, just a wee sip, almost like raising a glass and drinking it. And then the gentleman bird that he is, he hops sideways, sidewise, as it says here, to the wall and lets a beetle pass. As you can imagine it almost if it had a top cap. It would doff it and say, hello. So you get this real, you know, interesting perspective of the bird. And in the third stanza, we get this fantastic capturing, accurately capturing the movement and the physical features of this bird. He glanced with rapid eyes that hurried all around. And when you see a bird, its movement, its heads move rapidly and the eyes are rapid, moving around very quickly. And she described the simile of like frightened beads. They looked like frightened beads. And beads, if you look at them, you know, there's reflection of light off them. They're little round oval, round and oval, uh, oval shaped things. And here these eyes are captured, the glossiness of them and the light reflecting off them. You can imagine them moving around, looking around, frightened. And that frightened beads contrast with the confidence that we have in the opening stanza where he came down the walk. He didn't fly it. It's almost like he walked down the walk. That's how confident this bird is and immediately bites an angleworm. And that confidence there and that kind of civilness of it you know, letting the beetle pass. And here we get this sense that he, the bird is vulnerable and, and wary, watching around. They look like frightened beads, I thought. He stirred his velvet head. And you know, that the capturing of the imagery, you can picture that velvet head of the little bird, the soft feathers, shiny, almost velvet-like. He stirred his velvet head like one in danger. So again, movement around that sense of wariness, of danger, maybe that sense of being watched, but not by whom, not known by whom. Cautious. So like one in danger, cautious, I offered him a crumb. So she offers a crumb, you know, carefully, without real movement, offers the crumb gently often cautiously often and then you get this contrast this beautiful description of the rapid movement as it flies away it doesn't just flitter away or flap away and go you get this beautiful description of it unrolling his feathers and rode him softer home this graceful movement and even the, the you know it didn't just flap or move out its wings or spread them out it unrolls and that gentle movement that gentle description it's beautiful it's wonderful 
that unrolled his feathers and rolled him softer home. You know, rather than flying, it's almost rolling, gliding through the water of the sky. That, that, and again, that sense of the water in the sky, because we often, you know, look at the water, the sky, and it's that blue sky. And when we see it reflecting on the water or at a lake or anything, you know, they mirror each other. And here, you get that sense of the sky, and it's it's not flying through; it gracefully rolls softer home, and just a beautiful, you know sibilant sound of the softer unrolled his feathers and rolled him softer home the graceful movement softer home than oars divide the ocean too silver for a seam you know so it it does it so gracefully it doesn't create that splashing it doesn't create that wide rippling effect you know, two silver feet or butterflies off banks of noon leap plashless as they swim. You know, this, and, and there's a beautiful, you know, description and comparison of the butterflies, the movement of banks of noon leap plashless as they swim. And that leap and plashless, the plashless, they make you up word plashless, you know, but it, it creates that soft sound, you know, ra rather than splash and plashless. Splash and plash this. It kind of drops the S there and you can create a softer effect of it. You know, it, it, it's almost like the way a butterfly, that the movement of this bird is almost like the way the butterfly, which it's, you know, that, that little kind of the flutter that you don't hear unless you're, it's around a lamp or something like I always hear. You don't hear the, the sound of the butterfly. You might hear the flap of a bird but you certainly won't hear the flap of a butterfly and that's the sound of this as this bird you know abandons and leaves dickinson she frightened the bird and it frightened away but she doesn't create that sense of uh, fear there in that last few lines there's a sense of gracefulness and joyfulness as this bird departs the scene unrolls its feathers and it, it, you know, and then, you know, it's so graceful. There's no, there's no crashing sounds. There's no nothing, not like me crashing sounds there. There's no crashing sounds as she um, describes the bird leaving. It's a wonderful poem. And it's a lovely companion piece to Hope is Thing with Feathers. You know, in they're, they're both positive poems. You know, they're both positive, fun poems. One is a real celebration of, you know, what hope is. And this one of just the bird coming down the walk and just its accurate description. She, she does do that so well in this poem. Capture accurately what the bird is like as it goes along. Apologies if you could hear Paige's movement here. I'm not trying to disguise any of these things and have these wonderful um, polished podcasts. As I said, it's unscripted. It's just what I think as I roll through some of these poems unrolling through some of these poems maybe perhaps so hope is the thing with feathers and burke him down the walk a very you know they're, they're not the typical negative poetry that we associate or hear that stereotype of emily dickinson and we'll continue that again i love this next poem i could bring you jewels had i mind to and it's a wonderful one that celebrates you know the beauty of nature and how nature is a gift that you can give someone and just the simplest things and celebrate the simplest things. And again, there's a real sense of 
celebration and joy in this poem. And there is a hint of love in there as well. I could bring you jewels, had I a mind to. But you have enough of those. I could bring you odours from St. Domingo, colours from Vera Cruz. Berries of the Bahamas have I, but this little blaze flickering to itself in the meadow suits me more than those. Never a fellow matched this topaz and his emerald swing, dower itself for Babadilio, could better could I bring. Babadillo, or Babadilio, as I said there, Babadillo. Okay. There's a lot of dashes in this poem. If you look at it on the page, you see the spacing out. Now, I didn't space it out when I was reading it there. I kind of ran through it a little bit. But if you read I could bring you jewels. Had I a mind to. I could bring you jewels if I wanted to. Had a mind to. If I wanted to. I could bring you those. But she says, you have enough. And I love that. You have enough. Of those. You know that pause. You have enough. You have enough. Of those. I just think it's great. You know that sense there. You know that you have enough. And especially how she dismisses Jules. Of those. You know those things. I could bring you odours from St. Domingo. So you could bring you wonderful perfumes. Or vivid colours from Vera Cruz. And again those pause. I could bring you odours from St. Domingo. Stop. To, to allow you to. Almost smell those odors, smell those perfumes, those scents. And then colors and a pause from Vera Cruz. And again, Vera Cruz, you know, the a, a trading port in Mexico, you know, that you could get all these vivid colors, these exotic colors from Vera Cruz. She could bring those things. Berries of the Bahamas. You know, these are the precious gems of the Bahamas. You know, berries of the Bahamas have I. You know, these, you know, which are almost these precious gems of the Bahamas she, have I. You know, again, and you see that I, the personal pronoun all the way through. So the poet Dickinson is very much at the heart of this, that she's so confident that these are things she could do. And it's such an honest poem that she, I could give you these things. These berries of the Bahamas have I. But this little blaze flickering to itself, this little flower that's flickering in the meadow, flickering to itself as it blows in the wind, this little blaze, and blaze, as we know, is a flame. And it's, you know, when we look at flames, they're bright and vivid, almost dangerous in a way. This little blaze flickering to itself, this little bright flower flickering to itself in the meadow. You know, in just in a field, and the meadow contrasts brilliantly with Vera Cruz and Saint Domingo, or the Bahamas. You know, this little flower, this little blaze, flickering in a field, suits me more than those. That that this is what I want to give you. This would be more appropriate to what I want to give you than the likes of those flowers, or those odors, or those jewels, or those colors. That this little thing says more about Dickinson. That this is what she likes. And that she thinks this suits me as a gift. And when you think, when you give a gift, it's more what suits the person you think of. I'm going to buy something for that person. What do they really like? But she says here that this gift is more like what I would give to you. 
it suits me to give this to you. And it isn't suiting her just for convenience because it represents more what she is like. She could do all the fancy things. She can do that. She says she can. But the person has had enough of it. And she thinks something simple. And I suppose it really says a lot about maybe, you know, the way today everything is about what you can get. You know, there's a real sense of gimme, gimme, gimme. You know, these wonderful gifts you can give somebody, the fancier, the better, the more dramatic. And she's really taking that back to basics. She's saying, I'm not going to be giving you all these wonderful, fancy things. You know, there's sometimes great beauty in the ordinary little things that we have around us and we overlook them. We're in our chase for all of the modern conveniences of life and all the fancy goods, the branded goods, the merch. She says, no. I'm just going to give you something that really says a lot about who I am. So this flickering to itself in the meadow suits me more than those. And never a fellow matched this topaz and nobody has matched this topaz. And topaz is a, you know, quite a precious jewel. You know, it's, it's often a pale yellow or pale blue. She says, nothing could match this. Never a fellow, never a person could match given something like this and his emerald swing. And an emerald again is a, is, a, is a jewel and a swing. When someone swings something, there's a real confidence in that. Okay. There's a real confidence in that. Real show. An emerald swing. Dower itself. So never a fellow match this in his emerald. Dower itself. And to dowry, if you know anything about dowries, dowries is, tends to be a gift that's given by a bride or the family, to the husband upon the marriage. And that's an interesting thing here. We're getting a sense, maybe, this is a poem of romance, you know, maybe somebody who's maybe going to... Perhaps this is Emily Dickinson's diary. Maybe this she's going to give just herself. She is like that little um, blaze in the meadow. Something as simple as her and her life. And maybe that's what she's saying. And she says that that can be as good as anything itself. That we don't have to be given these fancy objects. That it could be just something as simple as that. She says, never a fellow matched this topaz and his emerald swing, dower itself above a deal of better, could I bring. She says, nothing can compare. That even somebody's showing off and, you know, there's a hyperbole of swinging it's the emerald swing, you know, the topaz. This topaz is a gemstone and then emeralds are gemstones as well. That, you know, you get all this sense of vibrancy that just something as simple as that little flower or even herself is as good as that. And she says, nothing uh, for Bobadillo better could I bring. So Bobadillo was this guy. He was a rich, I think he was a Spanish governor. And I think he was a guy that, Correct me if I'm wrong here, that might have taken over from Columbus and probably, I think, confiscated some as well, thus making him probably the wealthiest person around, would have had all these gemstones. Then nothing he could have had could be as good as a diary as what she can bring. And she says, what else can I bring? She says that at the end, better, dash, could I bring, question mark. You know, it's suggesting, is there anything better than that? And I think it's a wonderful poem that celebrates the ordinary things in life.
that we sometimes overlook, that we take for granted. And she's saying, there's nothing as good as that. You can have all your fancy stuff, but it's the simple things in life that are often the best. And I think it's a great poem and a real celebration, much like a bird came down a walk. You know, a celebration of just the ordinary things in life can bring you such so much happiness, so much wealth. And I want to go on now to another brilliant poem, another upbeat poem. And I think this is a real statement of this sneaky, streaky rebellion that she has that we don't get when we look at the picture of her in that I've already described. There's a real sense of that rebellion kicking against the Puritan, austere, Calvinist views that might have been there in the family. And even in that area, they would have been quite reserved and strict and certainly would have looked down on somebody who was a rabbit drunk running through the streets. And even though she's not a rabbit drunk running through the streets of Amherst, she says that in this poem, I taste her liquor never brewed, that she is drunk on nature and she is reeling through endless summer's days. It's a great poem, a great poem with lots of brilliant imagery in it that captures that recklessness, that fun, that abandonment that she feels and imagines if she were drunk, but not on alcohol. I taste the liquor never brewed. From tankard scooped in pearl, not all the vats upon the Rhine yield such an alcohol. Inebriate of air am I, and debauchee of dew, reeling through endless summer's days from inns of molten blue. When landlords turn the drunken bee out of the foxglove's door, when butterflies renounce their drams, I shall but drink the more. Till serpents swing their snowy hats and saints to windows run, to see the little tippler leaning against the sun. It's a real sense here of energy and a real joie de vivre, if you want, that sense of, yeah, I'm enjoying life. And she is drunk. Well, drunk on life, drunk on nature. She ain't drunk on drink, but she imagines as if she was. I taste a liquor never brewed. And that, again, that arresting opening statement, much like a bird came down a walk, you know, or even, you know, hope is the thing with feathers. She starts off with this very interesting opening to capture your imagination. I taste a liquor never brewed from tankard scooped in pearl and that the tankard scooped in pearl she's drinking not little glasses not little tipples of it she's drinking a big tankard a big pint full of this stuff scooped in pearl and that's you know the uplands there that it, the, the tankard is scooped in pearl pearl being a rare you know object that, that creates a sense of wealth and she's drinking out of that. Um, tankards are often made of pewter. And this one is made out of pearl, scooped in pearl. It's a real beautiful image of it. And that's what she's drinking out of. And she says, not all the vats upon the Rhine yield such an alcohol. And the Rhine area, the Rhineland area there in Germany is famous for its brewing. And she says, not all the vats, these large tankards, that are not tankards, but these large tanks or these large barrels in the Rhineland could yield an alcohol like what she's drinking, could yield such an alcohol. And she has ends that 
with an exclamation mark to show it. She says, nothing can touch what I'm on. And we do know that she's not on alcohol, but she's imagining it. Let's go with this. And she says, inebriate of air, of air, not of air, inebriate of air. She's drunk on air. Inebriate of air am I. So she says, I'm drunk. And debauchee of Jew. And then great, you know, alliteration there, debauchee of Jew. And that sense of, you know, that she's getting stuck in. And, you know, when we think of something, someone who's debauched, you know, they're really living the sensual pleasures of life. They're, they're going to the extremes in it, you know, and, and, and that would really be frowned in, in her Puritan, austere Calvinist life. Her family, her friends would look down on this and she is saying, I'm, I'm getting stuck in here. And, and what's your debauchee of? Of dew, yeah. The little drops that you see in the morning and the evening time when the mist descends and we see that it, that's what she's drinking. She's, she's drunk on that drunk on nature and she's reeling she's re when someone's reeling they're drunk and she's reeling through endless summer's days and you get that real sense of movement of, of just you know have free falling through the days drunk and having fun through endless summer's days and summer's days are the best days they're the warm bright golden days and she's having great fun this from inns of molten blue you know, the, the molten blue, the inns or pubs, obviously, old, ye oldie inns, these old pubs of molten blue. And molten is something that melts often by extreme heat, you know, molten lead, molten iron. So here it's really warm and, and she's reeling through these endless days of molten blue. And molten blue could be the flowers as well. It could be association with flowers. And she continues that flowers motif in the next stanzas. And she compares herself in the next stanza and how uh, to other drinkers and she says when landlords turn the drunken bee out of the foxglove's doors when butterflies renounce their drams i shall but drink the more so she's compares herself to the drunken bee who is so drunk he's tossed out of the local pub which is a flower and there's a great image the landlord throwing the bee out of the flower through the foxglove's door, throwing them out. The foxglove being the flower that the bee is gathering its pollen from. And here it's drunk and thrown out. It's had so much. So when landlords thrown out and when butterflies renounce their drams, and a dram is often a measure, probably of something like a hard liquor, like whiskey. So the, when the butterflies renounce their drams, when they've said, oh, I've had enough, I've had enough. So when the Drunken bees been thrown out and the butterflies, they've had enough. She, I shall, but drink the more. She will continue to drink. So she doesn't stop. She's complete debauchee. And, you know, comparing herself to others, she, she's drinking more than the rest. She's continuing on. I shall, but drink the more. Till serpents swing their snowy hats and saints to windows run to see the little tippler leaning against the sun. And that's a Again, those wonderful images that she captures here. She says, when the saints, the, uh, these, uh, they're, they're, well, I suppose they're like angels in heaven. When they swing their snowy hats. So she'll drink until the serpents swing their snowy hats and saints to windows run. And there's a great drama there running to the window. When somebody runs to the window, they're seeing what's going on outside. 
they're having a real look outside and these saints are all looking outside and the servers are swinging their hats and when they swing their someone swings their hats they're kind of acknowledging somebody and what do they see until serpents swing their snowy hats and saints to windows run to see the little tippler leaning against the sun so what are they going to look what are they looking at they're looking at the little tippler emily dickinson leaning against and when you think of someone drunk and they may be leaning against the wall leaning against the lamppost here dickinson is leaning against the sun it's a brilliant image you can almost imagine elbow up leaning propped up against the fiery ball the sun and that's a great image and it there's a real sense of fun in this poem and there's also a kind of as i said there's almost a, a rebellion almost a two fingers up to all those people who says he can't have fun you know this you know austere society she was brought up in she's saying look at me you know i'm having fun here and particularly the calvinists would believe that you can't get into heaven if you behave in such you know if you if you remember your jog or your history you know the reformation the calvinists they were the ones who banned drinking and singing and dance in their cities you know geneva when calvin set it up there and you couldn't have fun like that and they certainly could you imagine someone like emily dickinson you know in the behavior she's having that she would definitely not get into heaven with that behavior but yeah she's there in the last stanza there she's at heaven and they're all looking at her and there she is cozying up to the sun happy out it's a real sense you know that that sense of uh fun and rebellion as, as i mentioned that she's rebelling against all of those conceived notions of what she should be like this real puritan real austere woman and yet we see here someone who's having fun or, or imagine it anyway she's imagining the fun that she's having if she was drunk on nature and it's a real celebration of nature. It's a wonderful celebration of nature. And when you think of her, and as I said, we often pin her as being this person who is focused on the negative, very dark side of life. You, when you look at these poems, you can certainly argue the opposite. Here we have a taste of the never brew celebration of the wonderful nature, wonder of nature. Birkin, I, I could bring you Jules had a mind to again celebrating how wonderful nature is. And there's a sense of romance in that poem. And as I said there, Birkin down the walk, there's a real sense of fun in that poem. There is a little bit of caution in it at the end when the bird legs it when she gives it a crumb. But you know what? She's the way she describes the graceful movements of that bird, and then of course, as I meant, as I opened up this um, talk, the you know, uh, oh God, I've, I've forgotten my words now. But I open up this talk of hope is a thing with feathers. How could I forget that? Hope is a thing with feathers. It's wonderful. All of these poems really portray Emily Dickinson in a different light, and I hope. That has helped you look at Emily a little bit different than the way we often have. And maybe, I'm sure you look. But you probably know all this already. But if you haven't, and you thought that this was something worth listening to, you can subscribe and look forward to my next uh, little episode. And the next one will look at Emily Dickinson and 
what we would traditionally associate as the darker poems and we will look at them and we'll see is there any light in some of those poems is there any bit of hope in any of those is there any bit of fun in some of those because we've certainly seen from the poems that we just read there and talked about that she did have a bit of fun all right lads hope you enjoyed that and as i said if you did subscribe and if you didn't look at it's probably 45 minutes of your life that you can't get back but hey you know what how bad i'm sure you got something out of it take care and i look forward to talking some more nonsense about emily dickinson maybe some stuff that you might find useful take care folks bye bye